Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. The question this time is, what does the new guidance from the Department of Justice, the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document, say about our board of directors? I've just done a series of three podcasts that went through the new document rather quickly, and now I want to go back, probably not every episode, but periodically go back and dissect some other questions that are particularly interesting. On the topic of directors, we have a webinar coming up on April 19th at high noon central time that is going to be about training your directors, your board of directors. You can sign up rather easily for that by simply texting the word directors, directors with an S, to 44222 on your cell phone. So if you'd like to sign up for that webinar, we sure would love you to participate. And again, that's on April 19th. Also, in the meantime, please, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast. Please rank us, rate us. We certainly want to get your feedback. So, On the topic of directors and this new guidance, there are really three salient points that are made that I want to go over that I think are particularly interesting. They reinforce a lot of things that we've already known for a long time about training our board of directors, interaction with our board of directors, access to the board of directors. But I think it's particularly important, again, with a lot of the attention that we're paying to this new guidance and how that might impact how programs are going to be evaluated, to really parse this down a little bit more carefully and consider what the department, and particularly the fraud section, might be looking for here. The first thing that's mentioned, and this is all in Section 2 of the new Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, there'll be a link to that resource in the show notes here. Under oversight, the first sentence is, what compliance expertise has been available on the board of directors? So I think on first blush, that may sound like what kind of compliance background or history or experience do the members of the board or the, for for example, the audit committee of the board that has oversight over the program, what kind of experience they personally have? But I think there's another way to look at this, and, and this is the important piece, I think. That expertise doesn't necessarily have to be something that they bring to the table when they first join the board of directors. That can be expertise that's developed. That's expertise that can be developed through training. Yet another good reason, along with the sentencing guidelines, which specify that you should train your board of directors, another good reason right here in this document to train your board and train them about their responsibilities, about specific risk topics, about the code of conduct of your organization, the salient big picture items. There are many things that you should be training your board about and that you can train your board about on a regular basis. And as I mentioned at the top here, if you want to listen to our webinar here in a couple of weeks, that's a good way to get some information on how you might do that. So to me, you certainly can go out and find people with previous compliance expertise. I'm happy to sit on a board if you need somebody on your board of directors. But I think that that's expertise that can be developed. That you, If you can show that you are providing the resources necessary for those directors to become experts, not only on the specific risks that your organization faces, but their, their responsibility as directors. That's a big piece that's often left out of the puzzle. 
So I think that first sentence is very illuminating. And it might seem kind of odd when you read it the first time saying, well, what is, does that mean we need to have you know, ex-compliance officers on our board of directors? I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, depending on the circumstances. But I think it's much more broad than that. You can develop that expertise. The second sentence is interesting as well. Have the board of directors and or external auditors held executive or private sessions with the compliance and control functions? Well, this is a very traditional thing that we've been talking about for a long time now that comes out of the sentencing guideline standards, as well as case law, Delaware corporate law in particular, that there ought to be access, that the people responsible for using the sentencing guideline terms, the day-to-day operation of the program need to have the ability to reach the board of directors. So to me, this is reinforcing that very standard line that we've been saying for a long time now. There needs to be regular contact. There needs to be access. The private session piece, I think, is important because if there's not a private session, if the board or the audit committee of the board is not having a private executive session with the compliance officer or the person or persons responsible for the compliance program, there is the potential for them to be influenced or intimidated or otherwise affected by, for instance, the general counsel or the chief auditor or someone else or a group of many other people being involved in a general session. So I think it's of particular importance to note this idea of having a private session. And that doesn't necessarily have to be at the quarterly meeting. Maybe that's a online or phone session that happens with the board of directors or the um, subcommittee on a regular basis as well. But just keep in mind that they they do tease out this notion of having private sessions. The other very interesting thing, which is, I don't know whether it's necessarily new coming from the Department of Justice, but it's certainly interesting that it's included in this discussion, is they talk about the board of directors and or the external auditors. So we have this notion here I believe, if you're looking at the text, that there ought to be the opportunity for the person or persons responsible for the compliance program to have a session or have some communication with the external auditors. That's new. That's interesting. And I think that's worth considering uh, how that might fit into how you currently report. It might mean that there's something else going on here. I'm not sure. But I, I found that particularly interesting, and that is different from certainly the guideline standards. So I think it's worthwhile to consider how uh, information, regular reporting from the compliance function is filtered to external auditors. Is there a process already in place? Does it get there in some other way? But this is part of a sentence, remember, that talks about the directors and or auditors having executive or private sessions with the compliance and control functions. So I think it's more than making sure that that information is available to the auditors. It sounds like access to the auditors, external auditors, is something that's being contemplated here. That's, I think, going to be surprising and different to many of you based on your current uh, process. So the third item that I think that the third sentence here that's particularly interesting and gives us the guidance, the most recent, freshest guidance from the Department of Justice on what they expect from the board 
in that relationship is what types of information have the board of directors and senior management examined in their exercise of oversight in the area in which misconduct occurred? So broadly speaking, they're asking about what kind of information gets to the board of directors. So I think the thing to keep in mind here is if you have a regular quarterly report, if there are metrics, key metrics that you report to the to the audit committee or to the full board of directors, what is being provided? And, and perhaps maybe the more important question is what is not being provided? And do you have a you know justifiable reason for, for why certain things are reported and certain things aren't? I think there are very good reasons why you don't just do a data dump to the board of directors. And that's not just in the case of compliance, but just generally speaking. But I think you want to take some time and contemplate how you've made the determinations or your team has made the determinations of what gets to the board of directors, what's in that regular report. Perhaps there's some reporting that happens outside of the context of that quarterly meeting because there's a lot of information that has to be covered, not only on the topic of compliance during those meetings, and perhaps there is an opportunity for informal meetings, informal touch points which I mentioned before, not only to have the opportunity to have private sessions and and discuss topics, but also impart data and information and provide them background. So maybe you provide on the quarterly report a certain group of metrics, but there is maybe a monthly report that provides other information. So that's a way to get that information out there, get it to the board of directors in a timely manner, but not necessarily overburden them on a quarterly basis if for the for the formal meetings. It's something to consider. You need to to at least have a process in place for for how you collect information and a theory and a methodology as to why you provide certain information and, and don't provide others. This is also an, an important opportunity to consider what information you're providing. What metrics do you provide to the board of directors at this point? I think traditionally a common one is training and training completion rates. But for the most part in the last few years, I think companies have realized, uh, compliance officers have realized that that's not really necessarily that illuminating of a figure. So this is an opportunity, given that this guidance has just come out, to maybe re-examine the data and information, particularly the metrics, the actual hard data that you're providing the board of directors to consider whether it's really all that useful. And perhaps you could gather other information. If you're not gathering information now through surveys and other methodologies, maybe it's an opportunity to kind of reconfigure how you're gathering information. So take it as an opportunity to re-examine that completely. So those are the three key points under this oversight section, talking about the, the intersection with the board of directors. This is a key relationship, the access and ability to speak freely with the board of directors from the compliance function is at the heart of a successful compliance program. I put it right up there with, you know, culture, which as we've discussed many times in the past is a concept that you can't live without in a compliance program. I think similarly true, you can't live without the compliance function having access to the governing authority, to the board of directors, to the audit committee of the board of directors. That doesn't exist. If that's not a strong relationship, then there's going to be trouble down the road. So thanks for listening. Again, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Rate us on iTunes if you if you would, and we sure appreciate it. But we've been pleased with the success so, so far of this podcast and any suggestions that you have, uh, reviews you'd like to make, we'd sure like to hear it. And once again, if you're interested in this topic about training uh, the board of directors, just text the word directors, directors with an S, to 44222, and you will be signed up 
for our webinar on April 19th at noon central time, 1 Eastern. The upshot this week is, when looking at the new guidance from the Department of Justice with regard to your board of directors, keep three things in mind. Expertise is important, and you get expertise through training. That private sessions and access are necessary, and that the board needs all the available information it can get so that it can exercise proper oversight. Today we have three questions with Jean-Marc Levy. Jean-Marc is the Chief Executive Officer of ComplySci, a provider of innovative risk management and compliance technology solutions used by over 800 global financial services firms to proactively identify risks and manage complex regulatory and compliance challenges. He is a recognized leader in the ethics and compliance industry, and prior to joining Compliance Sci, he was the president of LRN, a global leading provider of ethics and compliance solutions. And he previously served as senior vice president and head of global issuer services with Intercontinental Exchange, NYSE, where he led NYSE Governance Services, another provider of corporate governance risk and ethics and compliance tools and services. Welcome, Jean-Marc. Hey, Alec. Shamar, can you tell us a little bit about your career journey? How did you find yourself in the compliance field? So I spent most of my career in the financial services, information, and technology space. And in that context, a few years ago, I was offered the opportunity to run and to expand the New York Stock Exchange's corporate services business. And one of the interesting things about the New York Stock Exchange that the general public doesn't really necessarily know is that in addition to its main role, which is to provide liquidity to listed companies, NYSE also plays a quasi-regulatory role by imposing certain standards on these publicly listed companies. And so I, I started to learn more about the regulatory burdens that was placed on these companies, not just by NYSE, but by regulators and other stakeholders. And so very quickly, I came to realize that CCOs operated in a in a increasingly complex and fast-changing environment. But on top of that, they didn't really have any tools or processes, and, and, and what they had was highly inefficient. And so that, in turn, reminded me of a, a, a lot of the challenges that financial services firms were, were facing in, in you know, 10 or 15 years earlier. And that in turn gave rise to what I would call the fintech revolution and the rise of the mm-hmm. fintech segment, which meant that the, the logical extension was that for people who were willing to understand compliance and, and the way in which tools, data, and technology could make it more effective, would be almost a blank slate, which was which was very exciting. And so I've been in the space ever since. You mentioned fintech, and, and one of the things that's been in the news, in the compliance news over the last year or so, is this notion that we've had tools uh, that have been developing over the last few years, but there's also this notion of automation around compliance, particularly in the financial sector. I'm kind of curious, since you're right on the inside of that, I've heard some alarmist <laughs> talk at some events where compliance officers have said, half of us aren't going to be here five years from now, <laughs> I, is, is sitting in this room talking about compliance. I'm curious, as, as somebody who's right on the kind of leading edge of, of those yeah, tool development, I, I, what do you think? I, I think the rumors of their, of their 
demise are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> I think what, what the tools are actually doing and, and, and the reason they're so valuable is that they're taking a lot of processes that were probably fairly low value add for a, for a compliance organization and allowing the compliance professionals and the chief compliance officers to really focus on the much more strategic aspects of their roles. Mm-hmm. So I think that if you have the right tools in place that can allow you to automate some of the processes that are mandatory and in some, some situations are actually mandated by regulators, having, having those tools automated in a way that you can rely upon frees up a lot of your time and attention to focus on some of the much more important things you should be worrying about as a chief compliance officer, like culture and understanding changes in, regula- in the regulatory environment. So I don't think that you're ever going to be replacing that with automation, but I think that automation allows you to, to create space and room for those professional and officers to become much more strategic partners for their organization. Yeah, and although it is possible to circumvent and bypass compliance officers, it's a little bit easier than to do that to a compliance officer than than a system. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. There are certain tasks for which you can, in some instances, trust a computer a bit more. Yes. Now, if you could go back in time when you were first being introduced to this industry and compliance as a as a practice and tools around compliance. And give your younger self one piece of advice before you started in compliance. What would that one piece of advice be? So it's actually somewhat related to what we just spoke about. I think it would be to, to tell my younger self much sooner or much earlier that, that compliance is not just a, a boring back office function where you know, people think of the compliance professional as the, as the green eye-shaped folks locked down in a basement. Yeah. Um, it would be to really understand that really the companies that who think about all the facets of compliance and their most technical aspects all the way to the cultural and behavioral aspects can really use compliance as a strategic advantage, can really be strategic partners to their businesses because if I had known that earlier, I would probably have gotten an even uh, uh, earlier start in the space because that would make it really exciting. I think, I think, you know, I, I do think it's slowly beginning to change, and and that fewer and fewer people think about the green-eyed shaped folks locked locked down in the basement. But I really think that compliance is actually sexy. I wish I had realized that earlier. <laughs> well, uh, let's not go too far, but no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everything is relative. Uh, <laughs> that's right. No, but that does bring up a, a question that, I, that I've had posed to other people coming out of the financial sector before. When I first came up as a criminal defense attorney in Houston, I spent a lot of hours in small rooms, in lightless small rooms, with, uh, with uh, commodities traders. Did you, have a, did you were, have a green eye shade? I did not, but 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 I, I was I was looking through a lot of materials that were created by those those folks that were overseeing trading desks. Do you think? Uh, my question is: Do you think that because of the sort of traditional, maybe stereo, stereotypical relation adversarial relationship between the trading desk and compliance, that the perspective of collaboration in the financial sector between compliance and the rest of the organization is a, is a harder nut to crack? I think it will 
always be to some extent. But again, at the risk of, of, of sounding like a broken record, that's also one of the areas where automation and streamlining of processes and, and making things easier for, for, for the traders and the financial professionals who look at compliance really as, as the department that slows us down and that keeps us from doing what we need to do. If you can make it easier for them, if you can show them that compliance is not just the place that comes to you to slow you down, but actually can provide you with the tool to do some of the things that are mandatory and do them faster, more effectively on your cell phone, on your mobile device, so that it, it, it does not interfere with what, what your core business or your core objective is, that's one of the way to bridge this gap. But I think that by definition, there will always be some tension. Yeah, yeah. If you could look into your compliance and ethics program crystal ball over the next few years, what, what are one or two trends or one or two issues that you think are going to be particularly important for compliance officers and compliance organizations? I think there are, there are three key trends in my mind. Data, data, and data. Um, Seriously, I I think chief compliance officers are increasingly being asked to not simply be reactive or to be or to just be monitors of compliance after the fact, Uh but to proactively identify and anticipate risk. And so, one of the things that I think is is just starting to happen, and 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 but. I think is going to accelerate very quickly is that with increasing access to, to vast amounts of data that, that can be made to work together and different data sets that you can combine that you were never able to combine before in order to extract insights about patterns and, and behaviors, I think that one of the key trends that we're going to be seeing is that companies and, and vendors and compliance departments who become really good at using data in a way to not just monitor and watch, but to provide insights and, and, and almost have some predictive power on risk issues and, and risk management in their organizations are going to be the winners in the next, next generation of compliance technology and compliance services. And, I think and- we're going to see that accelerate dramatically over the, the coming years. Yeah, I totally agree about the notion of organizations having to figure out a way to use predictive data. I think there's two kind of things that are pushing this. Number one is it's been hard for compliance organizations for a long time to justify their existence as a revenue negative aspect of the organization to have the predictive capability to say, look, here's what the weather ahead looks like, and this is why we need budget to address it. And then secondly, just to be able to adapt the resources you do have, you know, never mind resources you wish you did have, but the resources that you do have to bear for those things that, that are coming up down the line as obstacles you're, for the you're, organization. You're absolutely right. And on top of that, let's not forget that the regulators who themselves had been, you know, pretty slow in the way they had adopted technology and uses of data and have really caught up and they've they've invested a ton in in tools in data analytics in you know when the SEC comes to conduct an examination of your business they now have 
access to a number of tools, databases, and analytical resources that, that you could never even have imagined five years ago. And so if your own business cannot at least meet that bar and match them, then you're exposed as a chief compliance officer. Yeah, it's a new world. And if you're going to have a risk-based approach, as we now know that those, those words have been ringing in our ears for a couple of years now from, from our friends in D.C., if you're going to have a risk-based approach, then you, know, you have to approach it as any other risk professional would and, and use data to, to make sure you know what those risks are. John Mark, I can't thank you enough for taking a few minutes to answer our three questions today. It's my pleasure, Eric. Always nice talking with you. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.